The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Uh, I'm not the most punctual person in the world, as Lydia has just so eloquently helped me uh, remember. Um, but if there's one thing that I want to be early to, it is to the movie theater. I am less concerned about making sure that I have a ticket to the movie that we're going to see and more concerned with going to look at the previews that are coming. Uh, There's something about the green screen that says this preview has been approved for all audiences by the Motion Picture Association of America that just sort of gets me, uh, gives my heart a little flutter. Uh, I don't buy lottery tickets, but I would imagine that it's sort of the same feeling that you just sort of get this uh, sense of anticipation that something amazing might happen right before me here. Uh, Just like a lottery ticket, the chances of getting a mind-blowing preview are are pretty slim, Uh, but uh, every so often a movie gets teased on the screen that... uh, that grabs my attention so much that it's all that I think about for the next two hours of the movie. Even though I paid 10 bucks for this ticket, apparently I paid to be excited about this movie that's going to come out. And then the movie gets closer to being released, and whether it's in the theater or whether it's on Netflix, and they start sending out commercials on TV, they'll start sending out little things called teaser trailers, which are shortened uh, versions of the uh, preview. Uh, just to sort of whet the appetite. And then finally the day comes. The movie comes out or that limited series drops on Netflix and you're so excited to log in or get that ticket. And I don't even care if I have to see it alone. I am so excited for this to happen that, uh, that it needs to, to happen. And, and inevitably one of two things ends up coming in the end. Either it is a complete disappointment Or it is better than my imagination could have ever thought that it would be. There have been times in which the expectation did not disappoint. And uh, those are times in which I have been so profoundly moved that I didn't want to leave the theater or even move as the credits were uh, were rolling up. Um, And there have been times when I've been so pumped to see what I'm about to see, and it is such a letdown that I feel really bad about paying $10 to see this junk, or even that I have a Netflix subscription to begin with. And uh, why did I waste so much money and time waiting for this? And today we're entering into the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and up to this point, Jesus has only been dropping trailers and teasers uh, before us to see who he is and what he has come to do. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. He has driven out demons. He has fed thousands on mere scraps. He's walked on water. He has taught powerfully. He even recovered the sight of a blind man. In all of this, he consistently tells these people that he encounters to keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody about what I have done here. Why? Because the day of his public presentation or his theatrical release, if you will, has not yet come. And now in chapter 11, Jesus, for the first time, goes public with his identity. 
He's no longer keeping it a secret. The previews are done. It is the launch day. It's time for the release. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, uh, he enters into what we typically call the triumphal entry. He, and in doing this, he is unequivocally proclaiming his royal status as king and as his divine uh, being as Messiah and Savior. And as we work through this passage uh, today, we're going to see how the people of Jerusalem completely misread the previews. And they misread the, the teaser trailers of what was to come in Jesus Christ. They come to see something that they would soon reject because this man was not what they expected. And so this passage serves an, uh, as an indictment for us who want to see Jesus as we want to see him. Not as he truly is, greater than we can imagine and worthy of our worship and worthy of giving our entire lives over to. And yet, it is a catalyst for us to worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, so the Holy Spirit should guide us. I have three on your, on your sermon guide, but I, I, I knocked that down to two this week. And so there are two things that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, will guide us through in understanding. The first thing here is, is that we need to recognize Jesus as the king. We should recognize Jesus as the king. Uh, I grew up just a few blocks away from the Minneapolis International, uh, Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport, and that's really not all that special uh, unless something big happens or uh, someone big comes to town. I was about nine years old when my dad came into the house and he said, we have got to get over to Cedar Avenue and see this, which Cedar was really only about three blocks from where we were at, and when we got to Cedar Avenue, we joined up a line of people that were already on the street, um, and we were looking uh, east towards the airport and Highway 77. And I, I didn't quite know what was going on. I just remember the lack of traffic that was going on on 77, which was usually, usually covered. And it turns out that the highway was temporary, temporarily closed, which was rare, and then out of the south came this, this massive line of police cars and security vehicles. And in the middle of this caravan was this limousine that had two uh, red flags that were coming out from the, the uh, that were attached to the front. And there were a number of people around us that started chanting out, Gorby, Gorby, Gorby. And if any of you remember, that was for Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev had come to Minnesota. And so this procession that I was witnessing was the, the, the clearing of this highway, this protection, uh, this pomp and circumstance, this whole show which went on throughout Minneapolis was to usher in the president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who had just had the Berlin Wall knocked down not even six months prior to this. 
It's not unusual to see such processions for dignitaries and celebrities. Uh, anywhere that Prince uh, William and Kate go, people line the streets for. Anywhere that the Pope goes, uh, tens of thousands of Catholic pilgrims will go to see the Pope. Uh, I saw a YouTube video this week of the Beatles when they came back to London after their first American tour. And they got off the airplane and they could hardly even get in their car because the crowd was so large that they were swarming against uh, the, the, the four guys and security had to basically push them into the car. And as soon as they were in the car, they couldn't get anywhere because people started jumping on the hood. So people line up and they, uh, when someone important comes to town, people want to make a big deal of it. And in our text this morning, Jesus is preparing now to enter Jerusalem as a king. But unlike any other dignitary that we might see, uh, he doesn't have this large entourage to close the highway. He doesn't have a group of people that are shoving him into a car so that they can rush him out. He doesn't even direct anyone to shout out, Hear ye, hear ye, make room for the king. No one calls the newspapers. He doesn't even ride in on a war horse. Rather, Jesus enters and declares his kingship in the most humble way. On a donkey. An animal that's considered a beast of burden. Even today, a donkey has rather comical uh, associations with it. You think in Shrek, it's funny because donkey is a donkey. It's not a real well-respected animal. But yet Jesus is very deliberate here. Not only the manner of his entrance, but also the means of his entrance, of obtaining this donkey that he would ride. Look in verse 1. It says, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered him just as Jesus had said. So they let him go. Now this seems awfully strange, doesn't it? There's a lot of debate here as to how it was that Jesus knew that there would be this donkey uh, at a specific location that had never been ridden before. Now, there are many, of, uh, many scholars that would attribute this to Jesus' omniscience. He just knew what was going to be down the block. And so he could, he could see this donkey in his mind, and he was going to say, okay, go to this donkey, and here's what you need to say, and everything is going to be uh, good. And there are some of whom, and, and I tend to agree with this view, uh, that believe that Jesus more than likely had a prearranged um, uh, arrangement with the owner of this particular donkey. And the reason that we believe that uh, would only be, uh, we'd only have to imagine something. Imagine you're in your front yard and you're, you're working on the yard, and uh, you look down the street and a couple of disheveled men come walking up to your driveway. And they open up your car doors, and they start trying to get in. 
And you start getting a little nervous because you live here in small town Mormon, Minnesota, and maybe you leave the keys in the ignition so that you don't have to hang them up in your house. You think, boy, the keys are in there. These people are going to walk off or they're going to drive off with my car. And so what do you do? You walk up to them and you say, what are you doing? And they say to you, hey, it's all right. The Lord needs this car, and he's going to return it to you as soon as possible. Would you believe him? More than likely, you would either chase him down, you'd get on the horn with the Connecticut County Sheriff, or maybe if you were a concealer, maybe you'd be reaching for your hip. Because these guys are going to run off with their car. But imagine with me that you had a prearranged notion with a friend of yours that said, hey, I'm going to send a couple guys down that are going to need to borrow your car for such and such reason. Here's the passcode. The Lord needs it, and he'll get it back to you soon. The guys show up, and they say, the Lord needs it, and he'll bring it back soon. Would you then be comfortable lending your car to these folks? Probably. So my guess is that the same principle would apply here. Uh, They see these two guys stealing the donkey, and they said what they said. If they hadn't had that arrangement, they would say, fat chance, this donkey isn't yours. This is our donkey. And there would be justice for these thieves. So it's more logical to think that this was a code that they agreed to. So the other question here is, why a donkey? I mean, if he was a king, wouldn't he... Ride on a huge horse? And that gets us to the heart of our point here that we're considering. For Jesus to secure and ride a donkey, especially one that had never been ridden before, was unquestionably a public declaration that Jesus is the king that Israel had been waiting for for so long. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, at the end of Jacob's life, he blessed all of his 12 children. And of all of his 12 children, there was one that he prophesied would be uh, having a kingly line that would come out of him. And that would be the person of Joseph. Uh, Not sorry, not Joseph, Judah. And so when he was giving a blessing to Judah, he said this in Genesis chapter 49. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now, as we look through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see that he comes from the line of Judah. And perhaps even more specifically, the prophet Zechariah uh, looked forward to this day in Zechariah 9.9 when he said this. He said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It couldn't be clearer than this. Jesus is the king coming to Jerusalem. And to add to that, this was a donkey that no one had ridden on before. That's important because when we look in the history of kings, no one rode the horse of a king. It was his and his alone. But this is miraculous in the sense that a donkey you have to train. You have to work with it. But yet here Jesus, the first time anyone rides this donkey... It's a smooth trip from there in Bethany and Bethphage to Jerusalem. 
Not surprisingly, the people pick up on this in verse 7. And it tells us that the disciples brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. So there's no saddle. The jackets have to do. He heads towards town. He meets uh, the crowd, uh, just like the one that I met on Cedar Avenue that day that were chanting for Gorby. Verse 8 says, Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And it's very crucial for the rest of this passage to understand this, that the crowd was not putting out the red carpet for just some religious celebrity. This was the king that they have been waiting for all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. It's the one that they had been waiting for. This is oddly similar to the reception of Jehu as king in 2 Kings chapter 9, when it says that each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, the crowd here for Jesus is not going to overtly say Jesus is king, but their words, as we'll see here in just a moment, mean just that. And now the question that we have to realize after learning all of that information about what's happening here is, do you recognize Jesus as this king? Is he just some historical figure in your mind? Is he just some great moralistic teacher that taught us how to be better people? Or is he the king of the universe that has come to undo all the things that are wrong in this world? Jesus said in, Matthew, in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, in other words, is not interested in a theocracy. He is solely interested in the kingdom of God that resides in the heart. Do you bow the knee to this king? Perhaps we need to look into the second point to see whether we do or not. The second point today is that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. It had to be an exciting moment. I can imagine some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were much like my dad when Gorby came. We've got to get out to the Eastern Gate. This Jesus that we've heard so much about is, is coming And he's coming to claim his kingdom. And I can imagine the excitement as the neighborhood makes a beeline out to to that gate. And and there's like this giddy anxiety. The hopes and fears of all the years are riding on a donkey here tonight. That's him. He's coming. Get the palm branches. Throw them on the ground. Don't let this donkey trample up any dirt so that this king can come in even cleanly. And then he comes and the people shout the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And they chant the familiar words of pilgrims entering in uh, to the temple. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we might be tempted here to believe that 
in this famous moment, the, ones that, the one that we are all familiar with when it comes to Palm Sunday and Easter, we would be tempted to believe that these people here have solid theology. They are looking to Jesus to be the Savior and the Redeemer of their, their, their sins. Hosanna! But the thing is, is that they suffer from the same thing that many of us do. We know the right words to say. But we might be missing the point. It's a very common thing in the evangelical world to look upon the preview of Jesus' work and misunderstand the overall story. You see, the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not shouting praise to Jesus to save them from their sins and their infirmities. The crowd is not treating this as a spiritual savior, but a political one. This is found more boldly in verse 10 when it says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. These are not words of worship, but rather nationalistic slogans about the restoration as the, of the kingdom of Israel as they believed it ought to be. In the good old days, they are essentially shouting, Lord, make Israel great again. And Jesus will have none of that. Why? Because he is not coming into the eastern gate to restore a political powerhouse. Rather, he is in the beginning works of a week in which he will give his life not just for Israel, but for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. He is not a localized God. He is a globalized God who wants all to be saved. Jesus did not come to set up some grand earthly kingdom, much to the fanfare of these people. When we truly realize that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, we come to the realization that nationalistic slogans are completely inappropriate in light of what is to come. As Jesus makes the slow ride now on the donkey into the city, the, accolade, the accolades that he is receiving are actually an indictment on the people here because they want to use Jesus. They want to use him not as their object of worship, but only as the means to restore their political greatness. Jesus is just all right with them as long as he restores the kingdom to Israel. And the disciples uh, fall right into this all the way up until just before his ascension. In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Jesus had been crucified. He had been raised from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples after he was raised. And just before he was about to ascend to heaven so that he can send the Holy Spirit to give them power, this is what they asked him in, in Acts chapter 1. Lord, 
Are you now restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And in his mercy, Jesus tells them plainly, no, that's not what I came to do. I am leaving to send the Holy Spirit to give you power to expand my kingdom throughout the world. And I have to wonder as I watch the news, as I scroll through my Facebook feed, read Twitter posts and comments that come from them, or even in conversations, that many of our prayers are not, may your kingdom come, your will be done, but rather, Lord, are you now restoring the kingdom to America? In doing so, we forget that we need salvation from ourselves and not from our political enemies. And the only antibiotic to such theological bacteria is knowing, loving, learning the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must keep the main thing, the gospel, as the main thing. Jesus did not come to make America great again, but he came to make you and me great again. How many of us would be brave enough to have everything that you have said and thought and written in the last week shown and scrolled through on the screen up here? Not many of us would. That's just one week. I'm 40 years old. Some of you have a couple decades on me. Some of you have yet to catch up. But there's a lot of footage in those years. There's a lot of footage that I'm ashamed of, and if you're breathing, then no doubt there is some stuff that you would die if we replayed the video of not just last week but of all the years prior to that. When we take view of that, making America great again fail, just pales in comparison. We need a Savior for ourselves. When Jesus came riding on that donkey, he was making good on what he said all of those chapters ago in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He came not to restore nations, but he came to restore sinners. He came to pardon the guilty. He came to comfort the grieving. He came to give hope to the shamed. He came to give justice for the oppressed. He came to cover the footage that we have, all that baggage in our background. He came to cover that so that it would never have to go on a screen. And he did that as he passed by on that donkey and made his way to the cross. When he gave up his life 
and said, I will trade all of those things in your past footage for everything that is good in me. I will trade that for you. And he invites you to follow him and to trust that his work is good enough for us to be made great again. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, I've learned time and time again that movies and shows, they'll, they'll disappoint from time to time. Uh, the ones that are satisfying will end up losing their luster long after they're gone. But when it comes to Jesus, the feature is way better than the trailer. Salvation in his name will never disappoint and it will never lose its luster. Jesus died and rose from the dead for you and for me. The kingdom of God is at hand, friends. Let's repent and believe the good news. Let's pray.